Well, good morning to you again. It's good to be together once again in the house of the Lord. If you have your um, Bibles, either electronic or hard copy, we're going to be in 1 John again, and so you might want to turn there. We're going to be looking at some verses in 1 John chapter 2 as we continue our journey through John's short letter. And before we get into the message, I just want to say a bit about the three verses that we have. Uh, when we read these verses, then there, there's a sense in which they kind of appear out of place given the flow of John's letter thus far. Um, and I'll explain what he's doing with these verses when we get into the message. But one of the things that I wanted to say before we get into the message, because I'm not going to deal with that and try to unpack it in the actual message, is that it appears that he addresses these three groups of people. It appears that he's addressing children and fathers and young men. And if you read the commentaries about those verses, you'll find that there's a lot of debate about what exactly he's doing. Uh, there are three major opinions about what he's doing. Uh, one of the opinions is that he's addressing three groups of people in the church. Uh, another opinion is that he's addressing... Uh, one group, and he uses three different terms, and then there's another opinion that says that he's addressing the whole church, and then he uses two different terms to address the rest of the people. Um, if you have an interest in knowing those views, and you want to study these verses out that deeply, see me after, and I'll give you some commentary names, and you can do that, but I didn't feel like trying to unpack all that and going into those different arguments was profitable. And so that's why I wanted to say what I said about these terms before we jump in. And as we move through, I think you'll kind of see the um, understanding that I've come down on um, as a result of what I teach. So with that, I'm also going to pray. And so join with me. And let's lift our hearts up to the Lord. Um, and I'm going to be praying for Lupe Ordoniza because her sister Frances, I just found out, passed away. And so we want to lift that family up uh, to the Lord. Join with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for just your mercy and your grace. It was wonderful to sing through the songs that we sang this morning. It was wonderful to end with a song about how all we have is Christ. And all of the truths in each of those songs are so true of us who know you through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use those songs to continue to build us up in our faith. I want to thank you for Darren and Natalie that led us so well and that they pointed us to your throne, the throne of grace, and I particularly appreciated the call for self-examination and repentance. We know that for Christians, Christ has paid the penalty for our sins completely and totally, and we rest in that. But we also know that in the same way the disciples got their feet dirty when they were walking and Jesus washed their feet, so as we go through the course of a day, we get dirty too because we're not perfect and we sin. And we need you to be continually washing our feet in a manner of speaking. And so thank you for that time of prayer and soul searching and confession. I do want to lift up Lupe to you and your Denise family. Francis has now passed away and come into your presence. And I would pray that you would comfort Lupe and comfort the whole family with the comfort that comes from you. Holy Spirit, we know that one of your tasks, one of your works is as comforter, and I just ask that you would be especially close to them as they mourn the loss of Francis in an earthly sense, knowing that she's coming to your presence. Uphold Lupe especially. I know that Francis and her state of illness has been heavy upon her heart for a while, and so please help her negotiate these waters, these difficult waters. And so now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would open it up to us. Use it to build us up in our faith. Use it to encourage us. And then if there's anyone here that does not have a relationship with you, Father, through faith in your Son, I pray that you and your great mercy would draw them to yourself. Give me grace now to teach, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As a Christian young adult, 
This lady that I know of, she's a commentator, Karen Job says that she attended a church where the pastor, week after week after week, really felt compelled to give an exuberant altar call. And I don't know whether you've ever been in a church where the pastor gives an exuberant altar call. Uh, where I grew up and came to Christ, uh, there were churches that gave exuberant altar calls. And if you know what I mean by an exuberant altar call, it was an altar call calling people to believe on Christ, and it could really get quite passionate. And it could also be very long. You know, we've sung 25 times, just as I am, or we're going to sing it one more time because there's got to be one more soul that needs to know the Lord. An exuberant altar call. And she uh, attended one of those types of churches when she was just a young Christian. And in her mind, it came from a heart of compassion on the part of that pastor, a heart of compassion for those who didn't know Christ. He wanted to see people come to know Jesus. And, you know, that's okay within limits. Uh, I tend to try to invite people who might be present as unbelievers to put their faith in Christ semi-regularly, maybe every Sunday. Um, and so within limits, that's fine. But the problem was that as she looked around week after week after week, and I gathered from this that the church must have been small, the only people that she saw in attendance were people who were already highly invested in serving Jesus and serving in the ministries of the church and who were attending worship on Sunday morning and Sunday night and midweek, so three times a week. Those were the people that were coming. She would see these faithful servants of Christ. And she testified that over time, she, as she observed this, that she began to get the feeling through those repeated altar calls that the pastor was either accusing everybody of not being faithful enough or of not truly being Christians or of not measuring up to his expectations of spiritual growth and maturity. And over time, she began to experience some negative emotions. She began to ex experience discouragement, and she actually found herself resenting it. And so ultimately, she left that church and began to attend somewhere else. I don't know if you can relate to that or not. I can relate to that. And I open with this story because it helps us understand how our scripture for today, which is verses 12, 13, and 14 of 1 John chapter 2, fits John's flow in his letter. And so if we think back in chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, 11, and I referenced this last week, uh, John has laid out some very, very hard teachings, some very intense teaching. If you go back and look at verse 6 in chapter 1 or verse 8 or chapter 2 verse 4 or chapter 2 verse 11, and he's writing as a result of a situation that had brought some disunity in the church. We know that in chapter 2 verse 18, and the disunity was such that some people who thought they had a better way than the apostles had broken away from this group of Christians and led other people out after them. And so he was making some very strong statements designed to guard the hearts of the faithful, designed to guard the hearts of those who continued uh, gathering together under the apostles' teachings. And so before he made some other statements that were pretty pointed, like in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a heavy statement. Before he moved on to make some other heavy statements, he slips into what Martin Lloyd-Jones actually called a parenthetical exhortation, where he states to his church how he truly viewed them. And so when you read verse 12, 13, and 14, that's what John is doing. He's stating to that congregation how he truly viewed them. And that's what we've got in verses 12, 13, and 14. And the way we know John shifted is through the language that he uses. And so up until this point, chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 11, 
he's been using some very generic language. And if you go back and look at those passages that we've covered already, you'll see that he uses language like this. If we say, or if anyone says, or the one who says. So see, that's really nonspecific, right? It's very generic. But in verse 12, he shifts. Now, I want you to notice the shift as I read. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 2, he moves from generic to specific. He says, I am writing to you. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So he moves from the general, the generic, to the specific. He's beginning to address his specific congregation directly in these verses. Why the language shift? Well, after laying down the hard truths preceding, then John's shepherding heart kicks in. His tendency as a pastor kicks in. And he takes a moment to assure the faithful about what is already true of them as Christians. And that's important for us to realize. Because that's what these verses speak to us as well. He's saying to us through these verses truths that are already true of us as Christians if we are Christian. That's why he goes specific. It is as though he was saying... Here are some hard truths about true Christians versus false Christians, about true possessors versus false possessors. That's the verses preceding. And then he shifts to say, but you are true possessors of Christ, and I want to encourage you by reminding you about who you really are in Christ already. That's what these verses are about. That's how they fit into John's flow. That's what John does with these verses. He's assuring. He's now pointing those that were in the congregation to the reality about their Christian life. And he does so through what we might call a synonymous parallelism. Now, for some of you, that's a technicality that you might not be interested in. But let me just unpack what that means. Um, John was Jewish, right? And if you go back into the wisdom literature, you find that often... Jewish writers of wisdom literature used various parallelisms to communicate truth. And one of the parallelisms that is used by Jewish writers is called synonymous parallelism. So what is a synonymous parallelism? A synonymous parallelism is is a statement that says the same thing in different ways to make a point. And so if you followed along as I was reading, you see that that's what John does. And so he starts by addressing little children and fathers and young men, and then he turns around and he repeats himself, and he addresses little children and fathers and young men. And in the two different statements that he makes, he adds some things the second time around. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his sake. If you look in verse 13 in the last phrase, I have written to you children because you know the Father. So he says two things to these children. He does the same thing with fathers and with young men. But he's using this synonymous parallelism to make a point, to convey his teaching. Uh, Put simply, John repeats the same truth in slightly different ways. And by doing this, (coughs) he highlights actually three benefits or three privileges that belong to every person who finds themselves in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Put another way, he makes three statements of truth that are true about you and about me as followers of Jesus Christ. Things that are already true, things that we're not attaining to, but things that already characterize our lives. 
<coughs> so let's look at what those are. Uh, the first is found in verse 2, or verse 12, I mean. And it reads like this, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. That's the first benefit or the first privilege or the first characteristic of someone that's truly in Jesus Christ, something that already characterizes them. And I want to show you three things in this verse alone. Uh, First of all, John uses a term, children, and it comes from a Greek word, technia, um, and that tells us who he's focusing on. And so the question arises, is he talking to the children in the church that have faith in Christ, or is he directing it somewhere else? Well, I would say to you that it surely applies to those who in age are children who have faith in Christ, but actually John uses this phrase, little children, in a much broader way. Let me illustrate it from his letter. The use of the term children, technia, tells us that he's focusing on everyone who has faith in Christ because if you read through John's writing in the gospel, and especially in 1 John, John tends to refer to Christians as either children or little children. And so it's a common phrase that he uses, and it applies to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some examples. If you go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, it says something like this, depending on the version you memorized it in, uh, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become (coughs) children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So whether you were an adult that was 95 years old or a child that was 5 years old, if you were receiving Jesus, if you were receiving his person into your presence, then he extended to you the right to become a child of God. And this term children is used by Jesus as well. In fact, there are several places where he says to the adults, Unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes we look at children and say, they're children and they have fun and stuff like that, but uh, maybe they don't have a ton of stuff to contribute until they get a little bit older. You know what? That's not necessarily true. Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you're not going to receive the kingdom of God. And little children do have some advantages. Uh, They do have some advantages, but that's a sidelight. But John uses this term children or little children to refer to Christians. Let me show you how many times he does it. And if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along or you can just listen. Chapter 2, verse 1, he starts the verse, my little children. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he speaks to little children and children. Chapter 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. If you jump over to chapter 2, verse 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Chapter 3, verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Chapter 3, verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Chapter 10, in chapter, or, or verse 10 in chapter 3, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. You see the pattern? Now, the pattern runs on through through this letter. If you look at chapter 3, verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And then if you move into chapter 4, verse 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. The point being this. He uses this term children or little children to refer to Christians regardless of their age. And if you go all the way into chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. And then he closes his letter with the final exhortation, chapter 5 verse 21. Listen to what he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now he's talking to the whole congregation. Not just the little children, 
in the midst of the congregation. And as I said before, I'll say again, you can go back into the Gospel of John as well. And so he uses the term children or little children to focus on all the Christians in the congregation that he sent this letter to. Now, the second thing that I want to point out is the great privilege which we have as Christians. I am writing to, little cho- to you little children because, and this is a statement that it is so easy to take for granted if we've been Christians for a while, little children, I am writing to you because your sins have been forgiven you. Your sins have been forgiven you. There's a saying in our world, familiarity breeds contempt, and sometimes basic truths from Scripture don't necessarily breed contempt in our hearts, but they can be such that we can slip into the mode, yeah, I know that, been there, done that, I understand, my sins are forgiven, yada, yada, yada. Don't ever, ever, ever do that, brothers and sisters. This is a profound privilege that belong to the children of God, that our sins are forgiven by God. Now, let me tell you why this is such a big deal. Sin is a huge problem. Some of you might wonder, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Another way to put it would be, sin is any time we do something against God's law or we fail to do something that God's teaching would prescribe. So, have you ever acted unloving toward your parents, kids? Have you ever acted unloving to your wife? Have you ever acted unloving to your your husband? Have you ever acted unloving toward anybody? Well, you have to answer yes, if you're human like me. Love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no wrong to its neighbor. And so that's one way that you can know if you ever sin. And if any of you are under the illusion that you're not sinners, just ask yourself if you've ever done anything that was less than loving to somebody that you know, and as soon as you answer yes, you know you're a sinful person. That's why sin is a huge problem. And it's so huge, in fact, that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah, um, I think 59.2 or 51.2, I'm not sure of the reference, uh, but he wrote this, your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Uh, the, the result of sin in my life <clears throat> before I was saved is that um, I was separated from God and God's face was hidden from me. I couldn't have fellowship with God. You couldn't have fellowship with God. And if I thought I had some kind of spiritual fellowship with the God of the universe, I was being self-deceived because sin separates us from God and it causes God to hide his face from us. That's the problem with sin whether it's a small sin or a big sin, and it only takes one sin to make us sinners. You follow? One of the things that I've said many times, and I don't know if I've used this example here or not, but you could have a perfect driving record. Perfect driving record. You've never speeded in your life. You've never broken the speed limit. And one day, you're headed south on the 101, headed to Salinas, And you're running a little bit late, and you say to yourself, even though I've never sped in my life, I'm going to push the speed limit up beyond 65 to 70, 75, 80, because I've got to get there in time. And you get pulled over by a CHP officer. And he walks up to you and says, sir, madam, do you know how fast you were going? Do you know why I pulled you over? Uh, You were speeding. Do you know how fast you were going? Uh, No, officer, I don't. Well, you were going 83 in a 65-mile zone. And I'm going to have to write you a speeding ticket. And you look at him and say, Officer, I'm not a speeder. And he smiles back at you and says, You are now. (laughs) Because that one infraction makes you a speeder. That's the way it is with sin. That's why sin is such a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's such a huge problem that it took Christ coming, living the life which we can't live, and then dying the death that he died on the cross to remedy it, 
But the wonderful news is that Christ remedies that problem. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions, it says. In Isaiah 53, 5, the chastisement for our peace fell on him. By his stripes we are healed. And so John can write, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you. Your sins have been forgiven you. And there's a result of that. The result is that we, when we come to faith in God through Christ, that our sins have been paid for, we are then returned to God. That's what 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. That Christ suffered for sins once, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And he brings us back to God. Jesus does that. Another thing that happens is that this book, the Word of God, while it might have been a book of mysteries to us before we became Christians, suddenly becomes a book we can understand. Because 1 Corinthians 2.15 tells us why. Even though someone that's still in their sins can't understand Scripture and the things of God because they're foolishness to him or her, and they can't be known because they're spiritually discerned, when we become Christians and our sins have been forgiven, then we gain spiritual discernment. And that enables us to understand the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that we understand every nuance, every detail. Uh, the Bible is a book that's so simple that a child that believes on Christ can understand it, but it's so complex that the smartest PhD in the world can never plumb its depths. That's what Scripture's like. But even a child or anybody else, when they come to faith in Christ, has through the Holy Spirit that comes into us when we come to know Christ, the ability to understand Scripture. And the more we read Scripture and study Scripture, the more we grow progressively in our understanding of it. The result of that, or the reason that is a result, is because our sins have been forgiven us. And here's another um, result of our sins being forgiven. Our sins have been propitiated, and our sins have been expiated, and we've been redeemed. What does that mean? We talked about propitiation already. Propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. And so for the Christian, they never have to worry about God being angry with them anymore. Why? Because the sacrifice of Christ removed God's wrath, poured out on Christ, so that God could have pleasure with you, with me. The sacrifice of Christ expiate sin. What does that mean? Expiation is removal. So there's a twofold removal through the death of Christ. There's a removal of the wrath of God off of the person who has faith in Christ, and there's actually a removal from sin and its penalty away from the person who has faith in Christ. If you read through Leviticus, I want to say around chapter 16, but I might be off on the chapter, and you read about the Day of Atonement, that gives a picture of what happens when Jesus, having died, is believed on. Sin is covered, removed, penalty-wise, and it's removed away from the sinner. And that's what the goat that took the sin out into the wilderness was picturing. That's what expiation is. And we're redeemed, we're bought by Christ's blood. And redemption's a beautiful word, if you want to ever, ever study that. Uh, one of the words used for redemption, and it doesn't appear here, but it actually means to buy in the marketplace and remove from further sale. And the beautiful picture behind that word redeemed is that we as sinners were slaves in the marketplace of sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus comes along, pays the penalty for our sins, and we believe and we get removed from the marketplace and we're removed from further sale. Once we belong to Christ, the devil can't get us back, sin can't get us back, Death can't get us back because we've been taken out of the marketplace and removed into the family of God. That's what redemption is. And that's why when John says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you, that's a huge deal. And it's a privilege for all of those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the third aspect it was and is done for Jesus' namesake. That's what it says. 
Your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. What is that about? God looks on Christ's merits and forgives us. That's what it means that we're forgiven for Jesus' namesake. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become God's righteousness. I heard John MacArthur say one time in a clip that I recently listened to that what that means is when Jesus was on the cross, he made Jesus take my sinful life upon himself so that I could be awarded Christ's righteous life for myself. That's what the gospel is about. It's an exchange. It doesn't mean that Jesus actually became a sinner. He didn't. It just means that God caused him who knew no sin to become sin for us in his sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we're forgiven for Christ's namesake. And that gives assurance in and of itself. And so I'm going to stop right there. That's the first privilege. Now this results in a second privilege or benefit. John writes to fathers in verses 13 and 14 that through Christ, quote, you know him who has been from the beginning, unquote. He says that twice, verse 13 and verse 14. Now the question is, who is he talking about? Who does he mean when he says, you know him who has been from the beginning? Well, there are a couple of views on that. One is that it's speaking of Jesus. The other is that it's speaking of God the Father. Uh, The truth of the matter is it could be either or both. Uh, And he actually says in verse 13 to children again, because you know the Father, it's a great privilege to know God. It's a great privilege to know Christ. It's a great privilege to know him who was from the beginning. Let me share with you why. Tune into this. A primary difference between a person who is a Christian and who knows God through faith in Jesus Christ and one who isn't is that the Christian knows God, quote unquote, and the non Christian doesn't. The Christian knows God and the non Christian doesn't. Now, when the New Testament uses the term knows, it's not talking about things like knowing by intellectual assent. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I know a guy named John Newton. We used to have lunch together. I knew a guy named Fidel Castro. He used to go to our church. I could say, I know Fidel Castro And I know John Newton, and I'm 100% right, and it's true. The only problem is, if you're thinking Fidel Castro, the dictator in in Cuba, or if you're thinking John Newton, the great hymn writer and former slave trader, then you would find out, I may think I know, but I don't know the right one. You follow me? And if a person's not a Christian, they may think that they know God, but truth of the matter is they don't. They don't know the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know the universe of God, the God that created the universe and holds everything together. Um, They don't know God. Christians do know God, and they don't just know God from a distance like I know President Joe Biden, and I knew President Donald Trump. I could tell you all all kinds of things about either one of those men. Uh, I could say I know them. That's not what the know means. What the know means is that you know in relationship. I know my wife, Raquel. Raquel knows me. We have a connected relationship, an intimate relationship, a deep relationship, a loving relationship. And so when John talks about fathers and how they know him who has been from the beginning, that's the kind of relationship they're talking about. Those who are not followers of Jesus do not have that type of relationship. They don't know God. The Christian knows God. The non-Christian doesn't. 
Now, why can't someone that's not a Christian know God? In the natural state, those who are not Christians are plagued by a problem. The problem is what has been called in Christian counseling, biblical counseling, as the noetic effect of sin. What in the world is the noetic effect of sin? What is that? Well, the noetic effect of sin is the effect, the effect that sin has which causes non-Christians to call evil good and good evil. It's the effect that sin has on the hearts of men and women that causes them to tend to suppress what is true and good and right and exalt what is not true and what is not good and what is not right. Now, the Scripture says a lot about this. Let me give you a couple of passages. If you look at Psalm 36, there's a great example of the noetic effect of sin. Listen to what these verses say. Psalm 36, verse 1 and 2. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. You hear that? Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Within his heart. Some versions say sin talks to the ungodly within their hearts. What's the result? There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Sin speaks in the hearts of those who don't know Christ, of those who are not believers. It flatters her or him. One way that sin flatters is to say, when you hear the gospel, you convince yourself you don't need it. One way sin flatters is to say from the heart, all these things that those bigoted Christians say is wrong, really are right. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, and the result is there's no fear of God before his eyes. That's what the noetic effect of sin does. Uh, there's another passage that some of you know. If you look to Romans chapter 1, Paul lays it out quite well in that place. Romans chapter 1. It's pretty interesting what he says. Follow along in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now listen. The reason people suppress the truth in unrighteousness is because of the noetic effect of sin, the effect of sin on the mind and the heart, where sin convinces us that we're okay as sinners. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's the end result the noetic effect of sin. Let me tell you somewhere else that it shows up. After you're born again, you look at this marvelous creation and you think, man, what a great work the creator God did. And the noetic effect of sin in a person who's not a believer says, not too much about that. And if anything is said about the creation... Well, it all happened by time plus chance, and it became what it is. That's the noetic effect of sin. I had a guy who said he was an atheist tell me one time, I've never seen evidence of God in all of my life. I said, yes, you have. He said, where? I said, well, we were standing up on the hill of our church. I said, look to the east. You see those hills? You ever seen the stars at night when the, the lights of the city don't... Uh, obscure their brightness oh yeah man there are millions and millions well i hate to tell you this my friend but you're seeing evidence you're seeing evidence of god 
goes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. There's evidence of God's existence all around you. Why can't you see it? Because the noetic effect of sin steals it. And you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's intense. What the noetic effect of sin does is that it creates the spiritual version of the Stockholm Syndrome. You know what the Stockholm Syndrome is? The Stockholm Syndrome is a syndrome that people that have been held captive by captors for a long time may experience when they begin to develop positive feelings toward their captor and they may not escape even if they were given opportunity. And that's exactly what the noetic effect of sin does. It convinces us not to escape when we hear the gospel. Uh, Hopefully nobody here this morning is being affected by that because you're already Christians. But after the new birth, faith in Christ, suddenly, suddenly, as blind as we were, we can now see. And we know God. We come to know God through creation. We come to know God more specifically through the scriptures. And we come to know God through other believers as we see Christ working and brothers and sisters in Christ and they minister to us and we minister to them. And so that's the second privilege. It's amazing. Before we're born again, we can't see God's kingdom. After we are, we see it and we see the king with the eyes of faith. We know him who is over that kingdom. It's like Pastor Darren was talking about Fanny Crosby. She was blind, and yet she saw. Why? Because the noetic effect of sin had been destroyed, and through faith in Christ, she'd come to know God. That's the second privilege. So the first privilege, sin is forgiven. The second privilege, we know him who is from the beginning, Christ and the Father. But you know what? There's a third privilege or benefit, um, and the first Christians possessed it, and we who live now and are in Christ possess it as well. And that appears in verse 13 and 14. Let me show you. Um, So John starts by writing to little children because their sins have been forgiven for Jesus' namesake. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Now look at the next phrase in verse 13. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. That's good news. They were already in that state. And if you look at verse 14, I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He states that truth twice. Synonymous parallelism. Pete repeat. He says the truth once, says it again. Third privilege or benefit is that they have overcome the evil one. Now who in the world is the evil one? Well, the evil one is known in other places as the devil or as Satan. The evil one is the spirit who now works in the sons and daughters of disobedience. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, three, verse 2. We used to be under the control of the spirit that worked in the sons and daughters of disobedience. That is the devil. And let me just give you a sidelight. Every person on the planet is under some spiritual influence. You're either under the spiritual influence of the Holy Spirit of God, or you're under the spiritual influence of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air called Satan and the devil and Lucifer. But there is no neutrality. Everyone is under spiritual influence. Now, when I was not a Christian, I didn't know it. But after becoming a Christian, I discovered it. And so John is talking about this other privilege that there is an overcoming of the evil one, the devil and Satan. And the whole unbelieving world is in his power. 1 John 5, 19 says that. But listen, Jesus has delivered us from him. When you come to know Christ by faith, one of the benefits is that you are delivered from the evil one. Jesus delivers us from him if we are Christians. Because a possession shift takes place. We were possessed 
in terms of ownership by the prince of darkness and the kingdom of darkness, and then we become possessed in terms of ownership by Christ, and we're put into the kingdom of the son of his love. Jesus delivers us from him in a twofold way. He does it directly, because when we believe we're placed into a new kingdom, Colossians 1.13 says that, that we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of the son of his love, and then we are also delivered from him progressively, progressively by his word. And so if you look at 1 John 2.14, um, John writes, and the word abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That's one of the impacts of the word of God in a person's life. That the word keeps us free even as Jesus has made us free from the influence of the evil one. And if we spend a lot of time in God's word, we develop discernment to the point that we can even begin to discern when the evil one is trying to trick us and draw us away. And that should be the goal of us as we walk with Jesus Christ. And so progressively by his word, 1 John 2, 14, as we continue in it and as we pray. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you are in the habit of praying what we know as the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, regularly? Okay, a few people do. A lot of Christians don't, right? We learn it in Matthew chapter 6, but we don't pray it regularly. I would submit to you that the Lord Jesus would like for us to be praying that particular prayer specifically and then expanding out from it on a regular basis. And there's one phrase in that prayer that fits with this verse. Do you know what it is? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from either evil or the evil one. The Greek can be translated the evil one. And that's how we are delivered and we stay delivered. Directly and progressively. So the foundation to all of that then is Jesus' own prayer for us. Because we know from John 17, 15 that he prayed for those who were his, not that they would be taken out of the world, but that they would be delivered from the evil one. That's these verses. So practically what this means is this. If you're a Christian this morning, as the recipients of this first letter of John were when he wrote it, then your sins are forgiven you for Christ's sake. That is an accomplished fact. That's a done deal. Your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Here's the second. You've come to know the Father and Christ, his Son. And you can deepen your relationship with the Father and Christ, his Son. How do you do that? Through the Word, through prayer, by the Spirit, walking with him. And then you have and can continue to be free from the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. Another way to put it is, you've been made totally free. Free from sin, free to know God, free from the evil one. And these are your and my privileges. And so let us rest in them and get to know God better and better and better if we're Christians, even as we invite others to come to know the Christ that we know. I'm going to ask you to join me, and we'll pray, and then I'm going to read a verse and have our benediction, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you that we could work through these three verses. In the time allotted, there's no way to unpack everything that's in these verses. And yet, I think you granted us the ability to look at these verses and draw out enough sweet nectar to sustain our souls as we walk with you through the coming weeks. And so I just ask you, Father, that you will seal these truths to the hearts of everyone here today that are Christian. I pray that you would help us rest in these privileges, that our sins have been forgiven, that we've come to know the Father in Christ, that we've overcome the evil one through Christ. And then, Father, I pray, use us to build each other up through our most holy faith and to invite others to come into faith with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now I'm going to give a benediction. I'm going to read from 1 John. But before I do, let me just say this. Um, if you have questions about text, make sure and ask. Uh, ask Pastor Darren or Pastor Golub or Pastor Michael or Pastor Mike. I think that's the best way to, 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 to differentiate between the two of us. He's Michael, I'm Mike. He's Michael E., I'm Mike B., okay? But no, seriously, ask these brothers. Uh, come ask me. We would like to answer your questions if you uh, are wondering about this, that, or the other. Um, there might be someone here this morning that doesn't have faith in Christ. I just want to invite you to ask yourself one question. Why don't I surrender and follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior? Ask yourself that question. Uh, and then as we go as believers, we're given the great privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people all around us who don't know Christ. Uh, it's actually easy to do if we pray and then get just a tad bold. And so pray for divine opportunity. And if an opportunity arises for you to talk to somebody about your faith in Jesus Christ, by all means do so. Um, the world is on fire, brothers and sisters. No one knows how long it will be until things come to an end. And so let us use the time that we have to spread the good news of Christ and tell people that they can come to know God and have salvation like we have. Now, I just want to close with the opening verses of 1 John. Um, follow with me. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And now here's the most wonderful phrase. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Walk in the fellowship you have with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, in the coming week. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord and a safe President's Day holiday tomorrow. You're dismissed.